Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? A lot of you are familiar with Russell Moore. Currently, he is the editor-in-chief of Christianity Today magazine. Before that, he was the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, which is an arm of the Southern Baptist Convention. That's where Moore became a controversial figure. In 2016, he became a critic of then-presidential candidate Donald Trump. Early in 2016, he wrote an article for National Review arguing that a Trump presidency would be bad for the issues that social conservatives cared about, including abortion, marriage, and religious freedom. In addition, he said that Trump didn't have the character necessary to lead the nation. Well, you can imagine that put him at odds with a lot of Trump supporters, many of whom were Southern Baptists. It even put him in conflict with the future president himself. A lot has transpired since then. Russell Moore, who had come to faith in a Southern Baptist church, pastored a Southern Baptist church, and taught in a Southern Baptist seminary, publicly left the Southern Baptist Convention. He discusses this and far more in his newest book, Losing Our Religion, An Altar Call for Evangelical America. We cover a lot of topics. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. Russell Moore, welcome to Truth Over Tribe. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Well, I have been reading your stuff for a long time and following your ministry and really benefited from it. And when I first became familiar with you, you were a professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And I think the reason I came across you is you're very outspokenly pro-life. And so can we just start for a second and talk about the elections that just happened in Ohio and Virginia and Kentucky? It seems like when Roe was overturned in June of 2022, there's been this losing streak for the pro-life cause, both in red states and in blue states. And I'm just wondering, has that surprised you? Is that what you would have anticipated? It did not surprise me at all. It was one of the things that I feared as I saw what was happening to the pro-life movement, which for a while at least had gained quite a bit of breadth, relatively speaking, in order to say, we might not agree on everything, but we do agree on human dignity and human vulnerability. Once that's gone and it becomes a merely partisan issue, then there's going to be trouble, especially with younger voters. And then when you add to that, you know, there are some people who would say to those of us who are and were pro-lifers would say, well, you shouldn't worry about the legal aspect of it. You should only worry about finding alternatives to abortion. And my answer to that was we can't because we're citizens. We have to deal with the question of public justice. And so that question really comes down to, are we dealing with one vulnerable person or two? And how do we do that? So I didn't buy the persuasion only argument, but there has to be persuasion. I mean, that's not sufficient, but it is necessary. And I think that's one of the things that has been lost. And so I would say for years, if Roe is overturned, what happens immediately is not that abortion suddenly becomes legalized. As a matter of fact, it goes to the states. And my fear was, and this turned out to be true, that there would be revealed a greater pro-choice majority than we even knew. And the reason for that is because it's easy to say, I'm pro-life, I don't like abortion, 
when one thinks that there's nothing that's ultimately going to be done about it. But when it actually is challenged, then that brings this out. I mean, I would quote for years, and I think about it all the time, the woman who ran an abortion clinic who said, most of my clients are not pro-choice. Most of my clients do not come in with some idea that this is a product of conception, this is not a person. They don't have that mentality at all. Most of them, she said, are evangelical Christians, Catholic Christians, and most of them know that what they're doing is deeply wrong, but they feel that they have no alternative, they have no choice, okay? So if that is what happens, you've got abstractly pro-life people who are in their own situation, pro-choice, and then that becomes challenged legally you start to see just how many people actually hold to a pro-choice position. And I think that's what we're seeing right now. It's almost as if, in theory, like in a discussion or in a voting booth, people were pro-life. But then when it came down to their life, their choices, when it affected them or their family or someone they cared about, all of a sudden they weren't as ardently pro-life. Now, I have to admit, I was surprised. I expected some states, more blue states, to have very permissive abortion laws and more red states to have more restrictive ones as it kind of went out in a state-by-state basis. But again, that's not what we've seen. And so it seems like we've had a lot of people who said, hey, I'm a Republican and I'm for the pro-life cause and this is a litmus test. I mean, you couldn't get through a Republican primary without being pro-life. So, you know, it was a big deal. And now all of a sudden you have people who clearly were voting Republican because, again, this is happening in red states, who now are saying, yes, like in Ohio, they just enshrined abortion in the Constitution. So I guess I'm having trouble saying, how did that happen? There were a lot of, I guess, evangelical Christians who weren't as pro-life as we thought? Were they not really ever pro-life? Well, I think they were pro-life in the abstract. But for a lot of people, it's kind of like saying, what side would you have been on in the Civil War? And it's really easy for me to say I would have been on the side of the Union because I think that's the right side. But it would be very difficult. It would be a much more difficult proposition if I actually were in 1860 Mississippi. Very few people, if anybody, went that direction. So what's abstract right now would be concrete then. And I think the same thing is true here. And I also think that there are multiple pro-life movements, not just one. And I think one of the things that has happened is that there's a use of abortion as a way of defining partisan deviance as immoral so that you can ultimately say, if you don't vote for us, you're supporting violence against unborn kids. That, for some people, has been a key piece, but not the piece of actually dealing with abortion. And so I think that's been revealed. And then you add to it, you know, there are a lot of us who, for the last 25, 30 years, have talked about a pro-life, whole-life movement, which is to say you recognize human dignity and human vulnerability, and you consistently act on that, regardless of who is beaten on the side of the road in Luke 10. You have that holistic vision of what it means to be pro-life. Well, I think there's also a holistic vision of what it means to be pro-choice. Because if you look at, in Ohio, it's not just abortion, it's marijuana too. Daniel Williams, political scientist, has done a study about what happens when you have de-churching evangelicals, and sometimes a similar thing with de-churching Catholics, is that you have all of the same kind of dogmatism, but without church community, And what you end up with is a moving often to the right when it comes to issues such as immigration and premarital sex and marijuana, those kinds of things, and moving to the right on things like immigration and race and moving to the left when it comes to issues like marijuana and premarital sex and so forth. And I think that that's what we have seen. You know, a generation ago, there was the I vote values slogan. In some cases, there's now kind of an I vote vice standard, which is one of the reasons what concerns me. I think ultimately what we're going to end up with will be two pro-choice parties, especially as abortion starts to become more 
pharmaceutical than clinical because you can't hold a pro-life view for long with a kind of social Darwinist sort of view of everything else. And one has to go. And so I think you're ultimately going to end up with a shifting. And part of the reason for that shifting is that for a long time, the pro-life issue remained dominant in one of the parties because of negative polarization. The other side is for something that means that we're against it. I think there's a very conceivable alternative universe in which the Democratic Party had turned out to be the pro-life party on abortion and the Republican Party had turned out to be the pro-choice party on abortion. That's very conceivable at the very beginning. But because of the way that negative polarization works, that actually has kept, at least in the abstract, a pro-life position with one of the parties. I don't think that that can hold without a complete resorting of some of the cultural factors that we see at work right now. When you talk about the right de-churching and then you know, what they turn into. I think of the Ross Douthat line, if you didn't like the Christian right, wait till you see the post-Christian right. And absolutely, I want to get into that a little bit because I know, you know, in your book, Losing Our Religion, you're dealing with some of the implications and fallout from that. But also I think of you saying that there's going to be two pro-choice parties. And I think of Ann Coulter, the conservative commentator who recently said that pro-life movement is going to become the defund the police on the right. In other words, this thing that the extremists are for that really turns off the center. And so eventually Republicans are going to abandon that. Well, and she also said, if you remember, she said in 2016, I will never forget the statement, something along the lines of, I don't care if Donald Trump performs an abortion on the desk in the Oval Office, as long as he deals with immigration. Yes, I do remember that. You know, she's a very theatrical person and words things to shock. But the sentiment behind that, I think, has proven to be true for a lot of people. If you just look at kind of where priorities align, I think that's the case. I think the first book I read of yours was back in maybe 2010. It was Adopted for Life. And you tell the story about how you... And your wife, Maria, adopted little boys from Russia. And I know your family has grown since then. Have you adopted more children or, you know, how are your boys doing now that they're much older? Well, the two older ones who came from Russia are now 22 years old. And sometimes there are people who have read Adopted for Life relatively recently (laughs) and will say, wait a minute, they're 22. They're not characters (laughs) in a story. They're real people. They do grow up. So they're 22 years old. One of them is serving in the United States Air Force, and they're doing well. And then we had three more sons the more typical way, and they are 18, 17, and about to turn 12. Well, I remember really being moved by that book, and you know, it's been several years since I read it, but what I remember is that adoption is at the heart of the gospel, and that when we understand what God has done for us in Christ and adopted us into his family, that should move us to care about the most vulnerable people. And who is that but children without parents? And, you know, since you wrote that book, a lot in your life has changed, at least from my perspective. Like I said earlier, and you were an ethics professor, a systematic theology professor at Southern Seminary, but in 2013, you left and became president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, which is the public policy arm of the SBC. You served there for eight years, and now you're editor-in-chief of Christianity Today magazine. Now, In those intervening years, between you left Southern and now, you've become a very, very controversial figure. You know, you're a lightning rod for all kinds of issues, from Christian nationalism to the COVID vaccine to confronting abuse within the SBC. When I was reading your book, when I was following your ministry as a professor at Southern, I would have never have guessed that this is where you would be now in 2023. How do you explain that? How do you explain what happened to you? I don't think anything happened to me. I'm still basically exactly where I was in 2013. As a matter of fact, I went back and looked at the agenda that I laid out for the board at the ERLC when they were considering me to be president, and it's identical. 
to what I still believe and where I still am. So that hasn't changed. What has changed is the time period from 2013 to 2023. And so there are all kinds of things that have emerged that simply weren't part of the mainstream of evangelical Christianity at the time and now are in a lot of places in a lot of ways. So I think that has changed. And then I also think there are some things that have been revealed. I mean, if you look at even in Adopted for Life and a lot of things that were happening with that, sexual abuse was a part of that and addressing sexual abuse. What we have seen since then is the way that there are often elaborate mechanisms of cover-up in religious institutions when it applies to sexual abuse. I don't think I have changed. And I said to someone the other day, I trained and prepared to be controversial about things such as human cloning and in vitro fertilization and so forth. I never expected that the most controversial things that I would say are the most morally obvious to me. Rape is bad. Harming children in the name of Jesus is bad. Racism is bad. Hamas is bad. That these would be things that are the most controversial. I just don't think I'm the one who's changed. Well, it's interesting because I think by any measure, you are a theologically conservative person, and I would guess even a politically conservative person. Your theology hasn't changed. Your character hasn't changed. So what's driving this? If this isn't about theology, I'm guessing that it's about power. Is that right? I don't think you can look at what's happened in evangelicalism apart from what has happened to the culture at large. So there are forces that are at work that have manifested themselves in different ways. So you look at Jonathan Haidt, for instance, his research shows a huge shift in terms of the way we relate to one another, in terms of mental health, all of these kinds of things with the advent of the smartphone and for all kinds of reasons. So John Haidt will say 2011 was a really, really pivotal year in terms of where the culture of our country would go. I think that's right. And one of the things that worried me when some of these things started to emerge was to say, we live in a kind of culture right now, come back to negative polarization, to the kind of tribalization that we see in which you're just not going to have most people who aren't going to adapt and conform to whatever their particular tribe tells them to believe. And I think we have seen that demonstrated, not just among evangelicals, but in almost every other place as well. I think that it's kind of like if you compare it to the smartphone or to AI, one of the things that has always been very difficult for me in working in ethics as it relates to technology is that the technology moves so fast right now that there's not any gap between, oh, that's ridiculous, that'll never happen, and it's ubiquitous, and what can you do? There's just almost no time period between those two realities. So if you come in and try to prepare people you know, in the 1990s, before you know it, everybody's going to have a piece of glass in their pockets that will connect them to all of the information in the world. Would have sounded like science fiction-y stuff to everybody except for scientists and those who are working in that area. And then now, when you talk about, well, this is what smartphones are doing to us, the response is to say, yeah, that's bad, but what can you do? You know, everybody has a smartphone, everybody's here. And I think the same thing has happened with some cultural trends. You've gone very quickly from, oh, this is fringe, don't pay attention to it, they're just outliers, to this is normal. And that happens at a very, very rapid pace now. To go back to this for a second, your theology hasn't changed. You're the same person you were, Southern Baptist, for your whole life. You tell the story about, you know, you start your book, Losing Our Religion, with your altar call and putting your faith in Jesus. And 
yet something's changed because you haven't, you say, but it seems like the church must have because you were run out of your own denomination. I don't know who leaked it, but there was a letter leaked that you wrote in which you were very forthright in your frustration, anger, exasperation with the way things had been run with the people in charge there. So why has the church changed? Are you saying that the fracturing that's happened, you know, because of the smartphone and all of that in society has just come inside the church? Or is there something inside the church that's broken that has led to this fracturing that we're all experiencing? Well, both. I think that there is something that has happened in the larger culture. We're in an age of extremism and the incentives are toward extremism. So that's outside and inside the church. But you had particular vulnerabilities that were present in the church. And as a matter of fact, I think almost every vulnerability that we turned out to have was the shadow side of a strength, as is often the case. But if you look at, for instance, evangelical entrepreneurialism, which has been very good in many, many ways, the sort of market-driven aspect of evangelicalism means that you had a way to get the gospel to people that other groups just couldn't do. You can go to the frontier. You don't have to fill out papers at a diocese office. You can put up a tent and start preaching the gospel. And so that entrepreneurialism has been good in a lot of ways, but it brings with it a responsiveness to the market that brings about ultimately some really bad things. And those things have been present for a long time. They have secularized, though, and we have secularized with them. So if you look at, for instance, when I was a kid, if a church wanted to really grow in a community, a couple things could be done. I mean, one thing would be to be very, very practical. You do a series on how to keep your marriage together, how to raise your kids, those sorts of things. Or to be very, very speculative when it comes to end times. So you could have a prophecy conference and say, we can tell you what's really going on with the Soviet Union right now. We can tell you how Saddam Hussein is a fulfillment of Book of Daniel. You know, those sorts of things can create this kind of drama and sensationalism that we see right now. It's just that nobody or very few people are doing that with the Book of Ezekiel. They don't need to. In the same way, if you look at on the left, what happened with the mainline is that you go back and you read the old social gospel people. They were coming in and appealing to look at this in Scripture, look at that in Scripture. There came a point where that was no longer necessary or did it even work because you had people who started to realize, oh, wait, this is a means to an end, and the end is these aspects of justice, whether those things are good or bad. That's where it is. So I don't need to give up a Sunday morning for that. And the same thing has happened on the right within evangelicalism as well. There's a secularization that's been an irony because the fear of secularization on the outside has often led to the secularization on the inside. And it's an even worse form of secularization because it's a secularization that we're able to convince ourselves is from Jesus. Makes me think of an essay you wrote on your website. Maybe you've published this elsewhere. I don't know. But you said, we are losing a generation, not because they are secularists, but because they believe we are. What this demands is not a rebranding, but a repentance, meaning, as the Bible does, a turnaround. Is that what you're talking about, that the secularization from the outside was a secularization on the inside? And I can't say it the way you do, so you're going to have to interpret what I'm saying. But you've got this great line about how people outside the church are wondering whether we even believe what we say, you know, whether Christians, those inside the church. Can you unpack that a little bit? When I first started in ministry, I would deal with people who were losing their faith or people who were contemplating walking away from the faith. And in almost every situation then, 
uh, it would be driven by one of two factors. It would either be that somebody is saying, I just can't believe the supernatural claims of Scripture anymore. Maybe related to what they've learned about Darwinism or what they've learned about quantum physics or something like that. And they say, I don't see how that can line up with Genesis. Or because they're starting to say, I think that the virgin birth is just a picking up of an old myth. You know, those kinds of naturalistic sorts of explanations driving them away from the faith. Or because they think the church is too restrictive and repressive in some area of morality, usually sexual morality. It was almost always sexual morality at the time. That rarely happens now. And one of the reasons that rarely happens now is that because of the secularization of American culture, one doesn't need to be as brave, for lack of a better word, to say, I don't belong to a church. I don't believe in this stuff. You can do that and not sort of identify yourself as being completely outside of the social world. That's part of it. But the other part of it is that if you look right now, often the people who are the most disturbed by what they're seeing in the church are the people who aren't so disturbed because they've lost something that they've been taught. They're disturbed because they actually believed what they've been taught. And so then they turn around and say, wait, did you really believe this when you taught it to me? And for a lot of people, that ends up in the kind of crisis that says, I don't know what to trust anymore. I don't know what to believe anymore. And that's one of the reasons why I think that there has to be a concentrated effort to have a credible Christian voice. And that doesn't mean that you're not going to have that happen at all. It doesn't mean that you end up with an idealized church that doesn't have sin and injustice and error. We always do. It means that there's a mechanism for repentance and a modeling of repentance. That's, I think, absolutely necessary for what's to come next. Well, if I hear you right, it's almost as if you thought, well, I'm supposed to be filled with the fruit of the Spirit, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. And then you see, to pick one, Mark Driscoll, bullying people, abusing people, arrogance, and somehow the church ends up enabling that, and all these people are hurt, and you're looking around going, hang on a second, the average Christian is wondering, was I just told that? Was I sold something? I really thought we were supposed to be kind of following and imitating Jesus, but here are Christian leaders who are advancing and getting all kinds of praise and book deals and everything else, and they're not doing that at all. Or, you know, sexual purity, and then looking at a Ravi Zacharias or any of the number of people that we could choose from who weren't doing that in their own personal life. And so it's the idea of do Christian teachers, do Christians in themselves actually believe what they're teaching us, or were we just kind of stooges? And, you know, we've all felt that one way or another in the last few years. Well, I think, take those two examples that you gave. I think there's actually a difference between the two of them, and it's instructive of what we're dealing with right now. With the Ravi Zacharias situation, what we're dealing with is hypocrisy. We're dealing with all of the other sins and injustices involved in that. But there's also this hypocrisy. So Ravi Zacharias is one of those figures, you know, I said one time, there are very few people who have fallen in some scandalous way where I've been completely surprised. Not many people. You don't know what's going on, but it's a vibe <laughs> that something is off. You know, sure. That, uh, wasn't the case with Ravi Zacharias until the very end. We didn't know what was going on. So there's a sense of you told us that you believed these things and you didn't. It was just a job for you. That's a really bad problem. But then you look at the Mark Driscoll situation that you mentioned, that's a little bit of a different problem because it's not that people didn't know what Mark Driscoll was about. He was telling us what he was about. He was doing, you know, some of the things that came out we didn't know about behind closed doors, but we certainly knew. Yes. It wasn't that he was not matching up to his public presentation. It's that he had told us in his public presentation what he believed to be the way of Christ. 
that doesn't line up with what Jesus said was the way of Christ. So for instance, when Mark Driscoll said, I don't know, 20 years ago, talking about Jesus, I wouldn't worship anybody that I can beat up. Mm -hmm. Well, a Roman centurion could say that as he's beating up Jesus. That is just the complete inverse of what the Christian gospel is. So I think there are a lot of people who, when they see that, and they see that being not just accepted, but seen as part of what essentially what it means to be a Christian, they're thrown by that because it doesn't match up with what's happening in Scripture. And then you have people who, at the same time that they're seeing all of that, they are dealing with atheists and agnostics and Buddhists who demonstrate to them peace, joy, love, kindness, gentleness, self-control, those sorts of things, and they don't have a category for that. Now, of course, I think there is a Christian category for that, and I think that's part of the problem is the way that we did worldview training and the way that we prepared a new generation to face alternate views. What we often did was to give the worst possible representation of views that are different from ours in order to say, look at that, how stupid it is or how evil it is. And the problem is then when people have come to see these viewpoints as being the equivalent of supervillains in a lair, and then they encounter what's actually there in the complexity of a human being. Nobody's just a package of his or her ideas. They don't have a category in a way to see that. So for some people, the answer to that is to say, well, I must be an atheist. I must be an agnostic. For other people, it's not that. It's just this cognitive dissonance that's going on. They're thinking, I don't know what to do and I don't know who to trust. Well, I appreciate the distinction you made between Driscoll and Zacharias, and I definitely see it as you lay it out. One of the things that I think that disturbs me about both is that people around them protected them. Not so much Ravi Zacharias in the middle of it, I'm not sure, but when the information came out, the board rallied around protecting instead of exposing. And of course, the same thing was happening at Mars Hill to some degree. I want to ask you a little bit about the new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, who recently came into that office. The reason I want to ask you about him is because I think in some ways he shares a lot in common with you. Just kind of go with me here for a second. He is a lifelong or longtime member of the SBC. He's ardently pro-life. He and his wife adopted a child. He takes his faith very seriously. He's been mocked in the media for his covenant eyes using that app on his phone. But we both know what he's doing is he's trying to help his kid stay away from porn and be in the fight with him. And that's to be respected. Even his political opponents say that Mike Johnson is a nice guy. And I think even your opponents would say, yeah, Russell Moore has high character, you know, and it seems like Mike Johnson hasn't taken advantage of his position to make a lot of money. It's been reported recently that he doesn't have much money. His brother is a pastor of a SBC church in Shreveport in Louisiana. In fact, Mike Johnson was a trustee on the ERLC right before you became the president. So again, from the outside, it seems like you guys have a lot in common. And yet in an interview with Politico, Kristen Dumay is saying he's a Christian nationalist and we've got to be worried about him. You know, I mean, not just her, but other people are saying, oh, this guy's a Christian nationalist. This guy's scary. This is the ascendancy of the theocrats. So help me understand. Should we be excited? Because here's a Christian guy who, by all accounts, loves Jesus, goes to his church, involved in his church, who is now risen to this position of power. And so we as Christians should be kind of happy. I mean, of course, we don't agree with him on everything, but you don't agree with anybody on everything. Or should we be like embarrassed, a little bit scared, because here's the rise of Christian nationalism? Well, I don't think we know yet. And I mean, one of the things that I think we really need to do, it's one thing if you're a member of Congress and you're trying to think through who should we make Speaker of the House. It's another thing when that decision has been made. And then I think the responsibility for Americans, regardless of where we are politically or religiously or anything else, is to hope for success. 
and to say, we're going to give somebody the opportunity to do the right thing. They may do the wrong thing. And if they do, we'll say that, but we're going to give them the opportunity to do that. I think that's a good American impulse that we had for a long time that we don't have right now. So if you look at polling, for instance, almost every president until very recently would, when coming into office, have a honeymoon period that's actually good because you have people who are saying, you know, I might not have voted for George H.W. Bush, but he's my president. And that person could say, so I'm going to hope he succeeds. (laughs) And that has really gone away (laughs) in American life. And so I think we should do that. When it comes to the Christian nationalism piece, I think the reason that Kristen Dumais and some others are pointing that part out is because of the actions leading up to January 6th and the claims about the stolen election and those sorts of things. And I would be with them in being horrified by that. That said, it's one of these things where I find myself saying to a lot of my secular friends, okay, here are some things that I think you're right to be concerned about. The activity when it came to trying to legally not count people's votes, that happening after January 6th, that's a legitimate concern. Then there are other things where... It's what you mentioned with the covenant eyes thing, where the way that people read it is to say, this guy's sharing porn with his son. (laughs) Right. And you're like, people, that's not what covenant eyes is doing. I mean, that's not what's happening. And a lot of the sort of controversies that we have in American life happen in those ways. So if you are somebody who is more on the left... And you say, I'm not where Mike Johnson is politically, but come on, that's not what he means. Or, for instance, when he said, God put everybody here in the house in place, and so we have a responsibility for that, Mike Johnson says that God decided that he would be speaker, as though he's saying, God has endorsed me. That's clearly not what he meant. Clearly what he's saying is, we have a responsibility before God, because none of us are accidentally in any of our places of service. So if you're more on the left and you say, I disagree with this guy politically, but come on, that's not what he said. You will be seen to be disloyal. Just as if you're on the right and you say, Hillary Clinton didn't say that Trump supporters are deplorable. She said there's a category of them that she would call deplorables who aren't ever going to come along with her. But then there's a majority of people who are. She's talking about who can be persuaded and who can't. If you say that from the right, you will have people who will say you're being disloyal. But in both cases, it's a matter of what's true and what's not. And you think of that with Mitt Romney. When, for instance, he said 47% of the country will never vote for me, and he went through why that is in his view. But he said, you know, 47%, and that was immediately characterized as he is saying that 47% of the country can drop dead. And what he's actually saying, if you look at the context of it, whether you agree with him or not, he's saying presidential elections are going to be decided by very, very small margins because there are very few people who are actually persuadable voters. That's just an objectively true thing. So I think we're at a moment where even stepping back and saying, let me listen to what my opponents really are saying has become a difficult thing to do because as Marilyn Robinson put it, when loyalty to the truth becomes disloyalty to the tribe. We're in a very dangerous situation. And I think that's the moment that we're in. You know, I was just looking on TimeHop today, came up with seven years ago, today, right after the 2016 presidential election, I said to the Atlantic, what I'm really praying for right now is that Jerry Falwell Jr. turns out to be right and I turn out to be wrong about Donald Trump. I think 
He's elected president now. I think what we should do is to say we're hoping for him to succeed in every good thing, and we're hoping for him actually to display character and responsibility and those things. I think that that's what's called for as an American at the least and as a Christian at the most. We'll get back to the episode in just a moment, but today I want to invite you to become a partner with us through giving. If you enjoy this podcast and God is using it to change your heart and make you more like him, I hope that you will partner with us. If you've heard the stories of lives that have been changed, marriages that have been reconciled, church families that have been brought back together, that were divided by political tribalism, and you want to hear more stories like that, again, I hope you'll partner with us by giving. Of course, I wish we could pull off a podcast without any cost, but running these things can be expensive, and your partnership in ministry with us goes a long way towards making Truth Over Tribe sustainable in the long term. If you want to give, click the link in our show notes, or you can go to choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. That's choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. I hope you'll partner with us in this gospel-centered ministry to glorify Jesus by fighting tribalism in our churches, in our communities, and in our families. We don't give people the benefit of the doubt. We don't interpret what they really mean. Instead, we use their slogans or their lines that what they say against them, interpret it in the worst possible way. But back to Mike Johnson, the reason I'm asking you about this, and I want to ask you, does he fit your description of Christian nationalist? Based on what you know now, you could always change your mind, but my guess is you know him or are in that same circle of friends that he's in. And the reason I'm asking that is because I think Christian nationalism has become this slur that people use against conservative Christians. In other words, do I think they're Christian nationalists? Absolutely. Are they very detrimental to the church? Absolutely. Was what happened on January 6th a travesty? Absolutely. Horrible. The election wasn't stolen. But I think this Christian nationalism is now being used by people as a way to say, well, all conservative Christians are Christian nationalists. Is Mike Johnson, is there anything he's done in public that would cause you to say, I think he's a Christian nationalist? I don't know. You don't know? I don't know. I don't know exactly where Mike Johnson is on everything apart from his congressional voting record. What does it take for you to say someone is a Christian nationalist? Like, what is the definition, Russell Moore's definition of a Christian nationalist? Christian nationalism is the use of Christian symbols or vocabulary for an ethno-nationalist end. Ethno-nationalist meaning white, racial? Yeah. Usually, it's ultimately a kind of white identity, blood and soil sort of use of Christianity. So there's a racial component to Christian nationalism. Yes. Do you find that it's more prevalent in the South, in SBC, Southern Baptist churches? No. I didn't grow up in a Christian home, and so I am not burdened by all the baggage that some Christians are. And I've never lived in the South. Do you think that there's something within the SBC or the South that makes it a more fertile ground for Christian nationalism? I don't think that there's anything about the South that makes it more prone to Christian nationalism, especially when you look at a lot of the sort of vectors of Christian nationalism right now, they're not in the South. So I don't think it's a regional thing. Now, one of the things that we have seen is that I was talking to a reporter the other day who was talking about the county that I live in, which, you know, seems crazy. And it's the school board meetings, a mayoral candidate who had people who were protecting her, who were part of a white supremacist network. And when asked about it, she did this thing that a lot of people do with Christian nationalists is, oh, you just classify everybody that you don't like as this. 
The reporter says to the head of the security, so are you one of the Proud Boys? And he said, no, the Proud Boys are weak. <laughs> the quote was, I'm an actual literal Nazi. <laughs> okay. So all of that craziness going on that Phil Vischer called not Christian nationalism, but Christian Nashvilleism. <laughs> so you have all that craziness. And the reporter said, why is that the case? And I said, well, there are a lot of factors, but one of the factors is because there's not, this is a very affluent county. It's not, you know, economic anxieties, not driving this or something else. I said, I think there are many factors. One of those factors though, is that you do have a lot of people moving in from California and New York and other places. And it doesn't work the way that I think a lot of people either fear or hope which is to say, you know, all these Californians are coming in and they're going to bring California, blue state sorts of ideas in. It usually works the other way. You have people who are coming in kind of like somebody who has left a church and is joining a new church and is just constantly on the lookout for whatever happened in their last church. You have people who come in who are, I'm never going to let what happened in San Francisco happen again, happen here. They chose their new place because of the change of politics or worldview. They went to Nashville because it's more red. Right. And often with that comes a very extreme form of redness. And so I think that that's part of the dynamic. But the reason I asked about the SBC is because, well, first, I mean, it's part of what I hear. And when I hear about Christian nationalism, it's often connected to the SBC, but also because the subtitle of your book, Losing Our Religion, An Altar Call for Evangelical America, you say that maybe part of what got us into this mess in the church, where we have people who identify as Christians who aren't Christians. They don't act Christian. They don't know their Bible. They're not imitators of Jesus. They don't have Christian values. You raise the possibility that maybe that's because of the altar call. And I took you to mean that maybe it's this easy believism to try to get people in the door, to try to get them to accept Christ, to confess their sins and ask Jesus to be their savior. But then you know, it didn't really follow up, didn't help them grow in their faith, what Christians usually call discipleship. Is that the problem that you think is kind of a easy believism, whether it's the altar call or maybe it was in the seeker-sensitive movement, where, again, the same objective to get people across the line of faith, as it was often called. But then there wasn't a lot of substance once they did that. And so we ended up with a lot of people who say they're Christians, they pray to prayer, but they don't really have a substantive faith, if any faith at all. Well, what I said in the book was that I see the altar call as a mostly positive development. And the reason for that is because whatever else was going on, the altar call or the invitation in a lot of churches more in the revivalist strain, like I am, it emphasized to people every single week, not just here's the gospel kind of woven into the sermon, but a statement of here's the gospel and here's how a person can become a Christian in a way that reminded people, oh, wait, yeah, I mean, my neighbors potentially could be my brothers and sisters in Christ, or I'm not so far gone that I can't be saved. And I think that was all very positive. Like with everything else, there's a shadow side, and I think part of that shadow side was a kind of, yes, I think there was a kind of easy believism, but I don't think the problem can be reduced down to that. You know, we were talking about ways that I haven't changed. One of the ways that I have changed is that I saw cultural Christianity, nominal cultural Christianity in the Bible Belt as being largely rooted in the revivalist impulse and all of the things that you're mentioning there. Because I was in a place where, for instance, I would pray the sinner's prayer thousands of times because how can I know how sincere I was so one time? And so I'll do it again and hope that my sincerity is there, which the very nature of that is contradicting a 
gospel of grace. And so often what would happen with that kind of easy believism is that you ended up with not just a lot of nominal cultural kinds of Christians, but also a lot of legalistic, hyper-scrupulous Christians who were always worried that God was mad at them. So I think that was part of it. But where I've changed is I thought early on the answer to that is theology. The church is cut off from its theological roots, and there's no coherent sort of theology. And once churches and Christians start to reconnect with that, that will correct a lot of what's going on. I don't think that's the case because one can see the exact same dynamics at work and sometimes even worse when it comes to very rigorous theologies that don't have life. And so I think it's more a question of equilibrium than it is anything else. When it comes to the seeker-sensitive movement, I think that there's a part of that that has something to do with this. And the part of it is what we talked about before, the entrepreneurialism idea, which ultimately is the Guardian newspaper I quoted in the book says, you know, if you have a market-driven faith, you end up with a market-driven truth, and that leaves you vulnerable to hucksters and grifters and demagogues. I think that's right. But with the seeker-sensitive movement, I think actually in some ways, it protected the church to some degree from some of these forces for a long time because you had congregations that were reminding themselves all the time, I have a responsibility to reach my neighbors. And so in this time of worship, we're really going to be focused on those people who are not yet Christians, but who are seeking. Okay, even when that worked itself out in a way that I'm not comfortable with or that I wouldn't do, that impulse still kept people from demonizing their neighbors and giving up on their neighbors as irredeemable. And so I don't put the blame fully there. Anything, including things that are good, can be turned into something evil. And one of the dangers that I think we have is to say, oh, well, that's the one cause. And so if we just correct for that, then we won't get it anymore. And I think one of the things that we're seeing is that it's much more complex than that. So for instance, on sexual abuse, there are a lot of people who would say, well, look at the Catholic sexual abuse scandal that shows you what happens when you have an Episcopal form of government. These bishops can cover things up and the people don't know what's going on. True, but then when you see it in the SBC or somewhere else, someone say, look, that's what happens when you have this congregational form of government where churches are autonomous and there are no bishops over them. True, I mean, both of those things can be used for bad ends. And if you assume that, well, if only we had a more democratic form of government, then we've solved for sexual abuse, you're going to end up with a lot of sexual abuse because you're going to start to think that you're invulnerable to it because you've corrected that. And that's just not necessarily the case. I think I'm tracking with you, but I want to make sure because I think this is really important. You're saying that it's not the altar call in and of itself. It's not the seeker-sensitive movement in and of itself. It's not something that changing the church government can solve, that this is a deeper, more fundamental problem. And maybe all those things contributed in one way or the other, but they're not at the root. So what is it that's at the root? Because there's a rot not inside of all churches. You know, it's not as if this is everywhere and there's a lot of really good, healthy churches and a lot of really good, Jesus-loving, following Christians out there. Maybe even they're the majority, I hope, but there's still a problem inside of churches. And if it's not these things we've discussed, what is it at the core of it? Idolatry, making good things, ultimate things. But that's always been around and we all haven't always been in this condition or maybe we have been and now just through social media, we're just aware of it. Well, no, I don't think we've always been in this position. I think there are several things going on at once. And one of those things is something that is happening in the broader culture. I'm not saying 
oh, the outside world did this to the church. And if it weren't for the outside world, then the church would be fine. Because somebody would come in and say, well, yeah, but look at how much worse the problem is in some of these ways within the church. And I agree with that. What I'm saying is that you have some forces in the outside world that when they are Christianized, become much worse because they carry with them not just all the bad things that they have, but the veneer of Jesus. Now they're being done in the name of God. Yeah, an appeal to transcendent authority. I think that's part of it. I think the other part of it is I have noticed a loss of connection with the Bible, including among a lot of people who have a very, very high view of the Bible. I have seen people who are very dogmatic about biblical inerrancy, and I believe in biblical inerrancy, very dogmatic about biblical inerrancy, can tell you exactly why they're biblical inerrantists, who don't know the difference between Jeroboam and Rehoboam, and who think that, well, that's because that's kind of beside the point. Because I think there's a way of using the Bible, it can be used in multiple different ways. You can come through and say, okay, we're going to mine the Bible for life application, or we're going to mine the Bible for doctrines, or we're going to mine the Bible for worldview positions in a way that ultimately gets people out of the actual narrative of the Bible, which is what transforms. And so you end up with intuitions then that are not shaped and formed. I think one of the things that when the church does this the best, it's not so much that the church is preparing people for here are the things that when you see them, you oppose them and here are all of the ideas that you have. I mean, I would go through evangelism training, responding to every single cult, a lot of which don't exist now. I think what's more helpful, though, is having people who inhabit the Bible to such a degree that even if they don't know why, they are drawn to certain things that are true, good, and beautiful. And even if they initially don't know why, when they see something that's harmful, there's a reaction that says, wait, seems like I've seen this before. In fact, seems like I've been here before because they live in the pages of Scripture. And I think that that's one of the things that has contributed to the moment that we're in. But largely, I mean, again, I think that one of the mistakes that I think we could make right now is to identify exhaustively where all of the problems came in. Because then what we would do is to make up a plan. <laughs> And instead of that, I think that what God is doing right now with the American church is very similar to what God often does in all of our individual lives. We get to the point where we have to know that we don't know what to do. I made you to hunger so that you would know that man does not live by bread, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's a pattern that happens all the time. And Peter goes under the water and crying out, Lord, save me. Why? Well, partly because if Peter had just walked out to Jesus and walked back, the lesson he would have learned from that is me and Jesus can walk on water rather than the sense of dependence, Abba cry that comes with seeing actually how vulnerable one is. And I think we're at the moment where the thing that's most required of us is to say, we don't know how to get out of this, which means we really are dependent upon the Holy Spirit in ways that are not just slogans. I mean, we've always said that. If the Holy Spirit's not involved, we're not going to work. But it's often been sloganeering rather than the sense of actual desperation to say, if the Spirit doesn't breathe life into this, we're doomed. 
I started earlier asking you about your critics or acknowledging that you have all these critics. Tim Keller, who you were friends with, I'd never met him, but was greatly influenced like so many others by his ministry. One of the things that he said that has always stuck with me is that your critics, in some sense, do you a favor because they teach you something and they don't have to be all right in order to, like completely right in order to have some benefit. He's like, you know, maybe they have 10% right, but you can learn from that 10%. Have you kind of ever thought, what's the 10% maybe my critics have right that I need to learn from? Or is that still something that eludes you? Well, I learn from the critics that I know. Not online? (laughs) I'm not Googling myself, and I'm not looking at Twitter at replies ever. And that's not because I think it's necessarily wrong for somebody to do that. I think it would be wrong for me to do that because I know what the response would be lead us not into temptation. If I were to do that, I would be tempted toward a kind of second guessing and despair (laughs) or into a kind of quarrelsomeness and pugilism, if only just in my mind and heart. So I don't do that. But I do have people who actually know me who are able to criticize me. And um, in most cases, I think they're usually right or at least partly right and try to learn from that. I was going to close by asking you to imagine 50 years from now, the evangelical church in America is in a much better place. You know, and we sure hope it doesn't take that long. Maybe it'll take longer because we're not in control of that. But in the future, if the evangelical church is in a better place, how did we get there? And I think what you said earlier is it's not going to be because we came up with a three-step plan or it's not because we came up with this big initiative that we all started doing. But I take it's because we humbled ourselves and cried out to God and he moved in a way that none of us could have predicted. None of us could have done ourselves. Is that right? Is there anything you'd add to that? I said this years ago and I still believe it but I was directing it toward the outside world. And so that part of what God uses is the strangeness of Christianity and the strangeness of the gospel. And so part of our job is to sneak past familiarity and actually hit people with how strange the gospel actually is. That's the way people change. I would add to that now that I think that's the way inside the church that we come out of this. And one of the things that I think we have seen in all of the turmoil and all of the distress of the past several years, there is an opportunity for people amidst all of the wreckage to see with new eyes things that we once took for granted. And I'm seeing that on college campuses or among young Christians that I work with at our church and other places who I'm stunned by, I told somebody the other day here, I'm stunned by the sincerity of the kinds of questions I get, not because I think they're new questions, but because I think that if somebody had asked those questions 15 years ago in front of other people, it would have sounded corny. And it doesn't now. So questions like, how do I actually pray? What do you do? Or how do I read the Bible when I don't even know where to start and my attention span is so distracted? I mean, those kinds of questions are not, let's explain the problem of evil. They're sincere questions about actual discipleship in these people's lives. And I think that along with a rekindling of the right kind of evangelism is how we will come out of this. And so 50 years from now, if the evangelical church is in a better place, it will be because of that. And it will be because of the ways that some of the things that God's doing in the global church emerge within the American church. Dr. Moore, I really appreciate your time with us. I'm not sure I always see things exactly the same way you do, but I can say that I've always respected you and learned. I think I've read all your books, Losing Our Religion, the latest, and I've always learned from it and benefited from it. As we've talked about wanting the church to be healthier, would you close our time by praying for us as Christians in America? 
I'd love that. Yeah, let's pray. Father, we recognize that right now as a church, we don't exactly know what to do. And Lord, we ask that you would use that ignorance. You would use that powerlessness in order to show us what we need from you. And so Lord, would you give us like the pillar of fire, some light, even if it's just enough light to get past the next step. We ask that you would do that. And so Lord, we pray that you would give us a zeal for the glory of Christ, that you would give to us an affection for you and for the things that you have given to us. And Lord, we pray that you would give us faith, hope, and love, and mostly love. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. (laughs) Okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter.